Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. It is great to see you again. It has been a little while. I've been um, away for, I think, three Sundays. So it is just great to see your faces again and to be with you worshiping this morning. Uh, the last two weeks I've been traveling. Um, and um, man, it's just always good to come back to Malaysia. I love Malaysia. This morning, we are continuing in um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10. We've been going through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. So if you would take a moment to turn in your paper version of the Bible or your digital version of the Bible, whatever you may have. While you're doing so, I'd like to just say, I don't know if, um, for those of you that were there when we first gathered together after two years of not being together, um, it was Daniel up here on a guitar. And today to see a whole worship team, that's exciting to see. So I'm so thankful for all of you who are uh, using your musical gifts uh, for the sake of worship, there's no better way to use your musical gift. So thank you for doing so. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter, or first 12 verses of this chapter. And um, we won't read the whole chapter. Uh, and it's partly just because it there's a long list of, of names of places that... Um, that have significance in understanding the text, but maybe um, not for reading on Sunday morning. I don't know. So not the first, I'm starting in verse five, and then I'll go to verse 12. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send them. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like, like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem, 
He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. What do you fear? I know we can maybe make this a more dramatic thing and fear, you know, zombies or something, but what do you actually fear? Losing your job? Do you have fears for your children or other relatives? Do you fear for your safety, maybe? We, it's natural to respond in fear. We've been created that way by our creator. If I touch something that is hot, I move my hand, right? And I fear touching it again. And that's a good thing, right? But there are times when our choices are more complicated. When maybe either choice has something to fear. Um, to, uh, we make choices in work and family decisions that there's fear on, on either side. It's so much woven into our lives that it's just, it, we, we don't even think about it and we just react to it. I think in this, this passage helps us process this a little bit. So I want to do so in three parts, fears that fail us, the lack of fear that fails us, and fears that free us. Fears that fail us, a lack of fear that fails us, and fears that free us. Fears that fail us. Over the last two weeks, you've heard uh, Lee and Jared talk about the dangers of reacting to temporary fears. Isaiah 7 and 8, um, we see this oncoming threat of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were a particularly brutal and cruel empire. I don't know if you remember the story of Jonah. When Jonah is called by God to give, bring a message to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, what does he do? He runs the other way, right? He goes clear the other direction, and it's because Jonah knew their reputation. He knew the cruelty. In reaction to this oncoming threat to nearby nations, Israel and Syria, Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. And I, I realize Lee was trying to make that distinction, and it's just hard to do vocally. Um, so Israel and Syria combined forces to try to put up a, a block to the oncoming advance of the Assyrian, Assyrian Empire. And they wanted Judah, the nation of Judah, where Isaiah is the prophet, to join them in this, this block. And they wanted 
Judah to join them so badly that they were also pressuring Judah militarily, threatening conquering them. So King Ahaz, what he sees are his options are, I can join with Syria and and Israel, but they're probably going to get whooped by Assyria, and, or, I can, or I can pay tribute to Assyria and just kind of cut my losses, know that this is going to happen. And Isaiah's message to King Ahaz is the Lord is saying, don't do either one. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. But, but that's really hard. I mean, Ahaz is looking down the barrel of an empire that no one has stopped. We can understand why he might react out of fear in this situation. The threat was very real. And sometimes to be faithful does does involve cost. It involves suffering. We don't always understand or know what God is doing. But we do know that we have been called to obey faithfully. So my um, meetings took me to Poland and western side of Poland, not near where the, uh, not, not near the Ukrainian border, actually. Uh, but I was 30 minutes away from Auschwitz. And um, so it was an opportunity to, to go and see this concentration camp that was set up by the Nazis during World War II. Um, it's, it's known as the concentration camp that saw the most death. Um, the Nazis were committed to murder everyone they considered inferior. And this included Jews, but it also included those who disagreed with their policies, which were, included many Russians and Poles. It even included those who were visibly handicapped. The, the level of cruelty is, is so terrible, it's hard to even comprehend. More than a million people were killed in this one camp. What's amazing is in the midst of this, to hear stories of those who knew this wrong was happening and did whatever they could to save lives. So many who hid those that would have been killed. One such man was a Catholic priest by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. The Nazis sought to punish prisoners uh, because there was one who escaped and they wanted to 
discourage anyone else escaping. And so the way they went about this was to take 10 prisoners and send them down into a basement room and leave them to starve to death. One of those men that was condemned to die cried out that he had a family. And so this Polish priest, Maximilian, volunteered to take his place. According to a janitor who was watching things, Maximilian was not crying, screaming out, but was standing in the middle of the room or kneeling calmly in prayer. It's because he had confidence that he did not need to fear death or the, even the pain of starvation. There were so many who chose to fear the Nazis over their fear of God. Sadly, so many in the German churches that didn't like what was going on, but failed to speak up or stand up. If they had, it likely would have meant death for them. But like Maximilian, he knew that even death itself was not to be feared. It does not hold us. Today, we, we make choices all the time that the consequences of which are not nearly the life and death consequences of those in Poland and Germany in World War II. And yet, we so often fear man rather than God. We fear our boss more than our, our creator. We fear a bit of shame for our faith more than we fear the only one who can take away our shame. If we live out of fear of death or of being poor or being lonely or being uncomfortable, we live in vain. Jared reminded us last week that death is a certainty. Uh, human history, there's, there's only, uh, there's, there's not many who have evaded death. Enoch, Jesus, uh, Jesus even died, actually. So Enoch, it's a list of one. We can be the richest man or woman alive and still be miserable. We can be surrounded by people and still be lonely. Comfort itself is fleeting. So Isaiah here is really trying to give us perspective. That when we fear the wrong things, we do so vainly. And it's also saying that we, by fearing these other things, we are choosing not to trust God. So the lack of fear that fails us. In chapter 10, it tells us about the fate of the Assyrians. God used the Assyrians as a reminder to his people that they are not 
so protected without him. In other words, the Assyrians were God's pawn or tool. Isaiah does two things in chapter 10. First, he lets his hearers know that God is in control of everything that is happening. That the Assyrians are attacking only because he has allowed it. And two, he's letting his hearers know that Assyria will not escape God's judgment. Because God has used them for this task, they will still be judged by God for what they have done. They're not off the hook. Justice will prevail. We, we have a tendency to take credit for things that we think we do. So I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. My education. We make a big deal about graduations. Oh, you've done it. You've earned this. So I might feel that I've earned something when I graduate. But really, so much was done for me. I was born able-bodied. I can see to read. I can hear my teachers. I can write with my hands. And in truth, God did this. I was given parents who sought to nourish me and encourage my studies and even sacrifice for my studies. And in truth, God did this. I was given good schools with good teachers who taught well, corrected me graciously, pushed me onward. And in truth, God did this. And so when I look back on it, really, it feels like I did very little and that God did so much. Assyria thinks they have earned their vast empire, that they deserve each victory, and they are now the sovereign rulers. Verses 7 through 11 in chapter 10, they, they, they kind of move us into the Assyrian perspective. It's the Assyrian voice speaking there. That with each little kingdom they absorb, they, their military commanders now have more power than the little kings they defeated. Swelling their pride as they go. It was common for cities in those days to be devoted to each their own tribal gods, represented by idols most often. The temples and, and kings of each kingdom were supposed to show divine protection. So the Assyrians, as they defeated each of these towns, they showed each of these gods was powerless. Each of these tribal gods, Marduk, Baal, Hadad, they were revealed as 
nothing more than idols, powerless, unable to protect their people. And so as the Assyrian Empire approaches Jerusalem, they see a city that doesn't even have impressive idols to speak of. And so that's why the mockery comes from the Assyrian rulers. Your, your idols are even smaller, it seems, than these others. And the impression that they give is we're going to make minced meat of you. Assyria had never confronted one like Yahweh, who is not represented by any image or, or idol. And Assyria had essentially, though they paid homage to gods, they really had forsaken any kind of belief in the Most High God. Assyria really thought themselves to be gods. Every time we ignore God-given law, every time we take ethics into our own hands and do what feels right, we're not that different from the Assyrians. We live in a world that has begun to determine ethical decisions and even our very core identities based on momentary sentiments. I think it's a sign we've forsaken any belief in the Most High God. We've taken to trying to determine, to determine right and wrong based on feelings or popularity. And these things can be persuasive when we forget about God's standards. The people of Jerusalem and Judah, they too forgot to rely on God. And that's why in verse 6, it, it refers to them as the ones who are godless. It wasn't just Assyria that had abandoned their belief in God, but Jerusalem too had done so. In what ways have we neglected God in how we make life decisions? How do you determine your views on ethical issues. Big issues that are emerging in culture every day. How do we, do we just, are we persuaded by the, the, the sad story in the movie? Or is there something else that is serving as a foundation for what we believe is right and wrong. Fears that free us. Fear itself is not bad, but misplaced fear is 
that. So think of phobias, which just means fears, but we use them to refer to irrational fears. And people have some unusual irrational fears. You may as well. I have a fear of heights. And I can get, I don't love going to the, the tall condo buildings and leaning over a balcony. I don't like watching someone else do it. Even someone I don't like, I, I don't want them. I just, here are a few um, of just phobias. Oikophobia, it's the fear of being in a house or home. I don't know where, where they live. Arachibutyrophobia is the fear of peanut butter being stuck on the roof of your mouth. I didn't know that was one. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one gets a little close to home, doesn't it? Hippopotamonstrosesquipdaliophobia is the fear of long words. That's just mean. Whoever came up with that word, that was mean. You may have met someone with uh, ophidophobia, which is the fear of snakes. I, maybe one of you has this. A number of years ago um, in our home in Chiras, we discovered a dead snake coiled up near um, near the back side of back entrance of our of our house. It was really strange that it was just sitting there like that, dead. Um, we suspect maybe a cat just brought it in, left it as a gift. Sometimes cats have a strange way of loving people. Um, we, we mentioned it to our landlord, who was um, usually someone that had no fear and was really quite, quite feisty. But when we mentioned this dead snake that was no longer there, she suddenly grew pale, started sweating. She lost her balance. She had to sit down on the floor where she was. I mean, it's, it's an irrational fear, right? I think that's really, in truth, what we're all dealing with. We all, we all uh, end up bowing to these fears that grip us that should not. To fear... Death, for example. We are all, I mean, the track record is clear. We're all going to die. And so why do we fear it? Especially when we have promises that fear should, has no grip on us. At the end of the day, our care our lives, our sustenance, 
It is all from God. Our every heartbeat is orchestrated by God. So three sub points in this, and, I, and then we will bring it to a close. God is in control of all history. One really important theme in this chapter, and really in chapters 7 through 10, is that we are told how we should understand history. And this may feel a little bit abstract, but I think it's one of those things that actually we need to keep in mind as the people of God. History is moving somewhere. Not every worldview believes that. In many, in many places, people believe history is cyclical. What, what comes around goes around. It will come, what has got, come through will return again. Biblically, history is moving somewhere. There is purpose in history, and it is the Lord God who guides history. This does not mean, however, that everything that happens will be immediately experienced as good. We live in a world that is in rebellion. We see Assyria living out their violent lives. Now, God used Assyria's violence in his work of calling his people back to him. Assyria did great and terrible evil, but God used their evil choices as a tool of calling people back to him. Still today, the nations rage in rebellion. What role do we play in this? We must fear only God because, and this is the second subpoint, God will bring about justice. All of us are accountable to God, every single one of us. No one on the planet escapes that. Assyria would not go unpunished. Assyria may have seemed unconquerable. It seemed like nothing could stop them. And yet, every empire in history has taken on, has, has been defeated at some point. Their pride led them to defeat. Sennacherib of Assyria laid siege on Jerusalem while they taunted the people of Jerusalem and their God. This was years down the road. And so Isaiah is really forecasting. He is saying this is still going to happen. Assyria is still going to bring on their attack, and it's going to be scary. But here's what is going to happen. In 2 Kings 18 and 19 and Isaiah 36 and 37, we are given an account of what happens next. 
This is during the reign of Hezekiah. They, they lay siege on Jerusalem, and then during the night, an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian army. They would never take Jerusalem. God would not be mocked. The Assyrians would face God's wrath, and God's justice would prevail. The last part of this chapter describes a remnant of God's people, those who would be preserved by God. Despite the odds, the nation of God's people were able to continue. But more important than the geographical boundaries or political reign is God drawing a people who are devoted to him. This is ultimately what we see Jesus do. He draws a people into a relationship with God that frees us from all other fears. Becoming captive to fear is one way in which we get into bondage to sin. In John chapter 8 in the New Testament, it was this bondage to sin that was the subject of Jesus' teaching. But the people Jesus was talking to didn't believe they were in bondage to sin. And so this is what Jesus addresses. He says in John 8, 34 to 35, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. It is why Jesus came to set us free. Remember the Polish priest who died for another prisoner. Jesus' death on the cross set us free from our bondage. If we will abide in the Son. In other words, if fear holds you down, turn to Jesus. And on the other side, if you fear nothing, you should really bow before your God. The third subpoint in this section God gives joy to those who fear Him. To know that God is alone to be feared and that God alone saves us means that we must no longer live in fear to earthly powers or under the, be under the persuasion of distorted ideas. Acts 5 uh, brings, plays this out, uh, this contrast. At the beginning of Acts 5, we see this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they are, um, they sell, sell a piece of land. They're part of this, the early church in Jerusalem. They sell a piece of land and they give some of what they earn from selling it to the church. But they make it seem as if that they gave everything to the church, thereby lying, deceiving the church 
and even to God or attempting to deceive God about what they have done. Judgment comes swiftly to Ananias and Sapphira. And it says that fear, news of this brings fear across the, the area, the land. By contrast, the next scene, we move to see the apostles out doing many signs and wonders in the name of the Lord. This is particularly amazing because if you read Acts chapter 4, the previous chapter, you see that Peter and John had just been arrested and just been warned not to do any of this kind of ministry, not to speak in Jesus' name. And they said, sorry, but we're going to. And so they knew. They knew that there was a threat upon them. And still, here the apostles are doing many signs and wonders in the name of the Lord. And God was adding to his church. So the high priest of Jerusalem and other leaders were angry about this. And they had the apostles arrested, put put in prison. And during the night, an angel appears and releases them from prison, but with some instructions to go and stand in the middle of the temple. So they do so. The next day, uh, they discover that the prisoners are no longer in the prison. It's weird because the doors are still locked. The guards are still there, but prisoners are not there. And then they get notification that the very people that they had imprisoned are just standing out there, broad daylight, in the court, center court of the, of the temple. And so the priest, again, comes in to question them. So Acts 5, 27 to 32, it says this. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's an amazing thing. And in response to this, the, the, the council, this religious council, they don't know what to do. And upon deliberating, they decide, okay, we will, if this is really not from God, then it'll, it'll stop. And so they, they beat them and then set them free. And verses 41, 42 say this, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day and in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is what should mark us as the people of God. 
that we fear nothing except God himself. And that we boldly love the world, that we boldly care for those who are downtrodden, that we boldly preach the good news of hope found in Jesus. So I pray that if there is something, if there is some kind of fear that has you trapped, that you would seek Jesus and seek the freedom that can be found in Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we, um, I, I, it's hard to put myself in the shoes of, of Ahaz as Assyria is march, marching steadily to the city gates. And yet, God, we are clear that you are sovereign over all things, even the most daunting and fearsome of things. And so, Father, I ask that you would give us each an increase of faith to know that you are a good God, that you are sovereign and that you are orchestrating things for the good. And Father, that though there might be suffering for a time, Father, we pray that you would give us boldness, that you would give us a willing, an ability to lay aside our fears, to, to give us freedom from those things that, that hold us down, that we might live radically for the sake of your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.